The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. And his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I'm going to pray now. Father, you tell us earlier in James that your word is like a mirror. So God, as we hold up that mirror to ourselves today, I pray that you would give us both the courage and the wisdom to be honest as we look at what your word says about us. God, I pray that your word today would go out in mighty ways, that it would encourage the faint-hearted, that it would give believers assurance of their faith, that it would humble the proud, that anybody in here who has a, a dead faith would see the emptiness of that dead faith and turn and trust Jesus. Lord, I know that your word can give life, so I'm asking you today to do that. Let your word just go out in this place and give life. God, there are life on the pages of scripture and we want it. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So my wife Amy and I, we're pretty new parents. Like our, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated our son Jet's first birthday. Thank you. Some of you know Jet, and you're excited about that. Everyone else who didn't cheer, I'll just assume you don't know Jet, because he's awesome. He's the coolest kid ever. And we just celebrated his first birthday, and we learned, so we haven't been at this a long time, but we've learned in the short time we've been parents that being a parent comes with certain skills. Like I can... Even if you have no kid around you, I can tell whether or not you're a parent. There's a few things. Like, so if you're a new parent, it's obvious. You got bags under your eyes, you're exhausted. If we get in your car, there are Cheerios everywhere and it's just unexplainable. But there's something that's even more sure than that. In a conversation, even if your kids are a mile away, I can tell whether or not you're a parent. And it's all based on your reactions to two words, blow out. If we start talking about blowouts, you can really quickly tell who in this room has had kids and who hasn't had kids. The other day, my wife and I, we were FaceTiming some friends, and we were talking to them, and we were, they're like, oh, how was your day? And we were like, oh, you know, Jet had this massive blowout. It was so disgusting, and we're going into all this detail, just diaper talk. And our friends, we look up at the screen, and we see them, and they're just horrified. Like, why... Why would you think we need to know that, Craig? Like, this is not polite conversation. Like, this is, stop. Just, I don't want to know about that. But if you're talking to a parent, you get a totally different reaction. You can see it on their face. They're like this. You call that a blowout story? <laughs> oh, really? That's it? That's all there was in that diaper? Well, let me tell you, I'll hear that blowout story, and I'll raise you this blowout story. It's super easy, you can tell. Even in this room, I can see some of your faces and you're like, yeah, that's true. And some of you are like, oh, that's gross. There's, it's super easy to tell who's a parent and who's a not parent, not a parent, based on their reaction to that story. And as we dive back into the book of James, James is making that exact same point, minus the diapers. James is saying this, if you really are a Christian, 
If you really have been saved by God, if you saw that you were alienated from God by your own sin, sin that impacts everything you do, if you really saw that and you turned from your sins in faith to Christ, embraced him, and are now a Christian, there will be signs of life. That's what James is talking about. And I want to show you from this passage what those signs of life are. I think it's really simple. James is saying this. If you're born again, if you really are a Christian, if you really have faith, your life will be marked by love. Love is the fruit of faith. That's where we're going today. So James does this by showing us a few different examples of faith. He starts this passage out, and he looks at what he calls dead faith. And he describes that for us a little bit. He says, hey, dead faith is just intellectual. It knows all these facts about God. It may even like theology, but it doesn't let faith invade the areas of its life. But true faith, if you have real faith in God, that results in love for God and love for others. And I'm going to show you that in this passage today. So we're looking at three examples of faith. First, James shows us the faith of demons. Then we look at the faith of Abraham. Then we're looking at the faith of Rahab. So let's jump into our passage and let's first look at what he calls dead faith. But before we even do that, I just want to pause because there's a potential landmine when James uses the word works. I think the NIV uses the word deeds, but in most English translations, James says faith and works. And this is where people start to get a little bit nervous because James straight up says something that sounds like it's contradicting the gospel. Paul says in Romans 3.28, he says this, we know that a person is not justified, is not right before God on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith in Christ. And then James seems to say the complete opposite. And so I would be doing a little bit of spiritual malpractice if I didn't even address that. I just have to tell you like a small pet peeve. I, uh, I'm a pretty new pastor, and like when you're a new pastor, you make these resolutions, like, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. And I made this resolution of like, if I ever preach on this passage, I'm not going to talk about Paul. I'm not going to do it. Because that's all, if you Google sermons on this, that's all people can talk about. They get so distracted. And I'm like breaking that, and I feel really guilty about it, so I just had to throw that out there. But you need to see here that Paul and James are talking about two totally different things. And I think we're in danger because I think we read Paul into James here. So you got to keep in mind, they're writing to two different audiences who are struggling with two totally different things. And the idea that most of us in this room have of works is what Paul is writing to address. Paul says in Romans 3.28, he says, you're not made right by effort. You're not made right before God. You're not loved by God, accepted by God, welcomed into God's presence and family by the effort you put forward. And James heartily would agree with that. What James's idea of works, though, James has a totally different idea. His idea of works is not effort. James's idea of works is fruit, something that's passive, something that happens to you. And I can show you that at the beginning of James. In the beginning of James, he first introduces this word work, and he talks about what he's thinking about when he uses the word work. You probably know this, but just listen. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face uh, various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, here's the part you want to listen to. Let perseverance finish its work, same word as in uh, chapter 2, so that you might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, what's, what's being said there? James is saying this. 
If you persevere in the faith, that's going to produce something in you. That's going to produce a thing called a work. And if you let that work do its, its due diligence, let it just happen, you're going to be mature and complete. That's passive. That's not something you're doing. That's not energy you're outputting. That's something that's happening to you. And so James doesn't have Paul's idea of work here in mind. He actually has Jesus's idea of work in mind. Uh, In Matthew 7, 17, Jesus makes this statement. He says, you will know a tree by its fruit. Good trees have good fruit. Bad trees have bad fruit. And now, for those of you thinking Jesus is giving an ag class, you're like, yeah, that's, duh, that's obvious. But what Jesus is saying here is this. Who you are flows out into what you do. So if you are a good tree, you'll produce good fruit. So just like this, if you were walking through an orchard and you saw apples all over these trees, you wouldn't say, it's really weird that these orange trees are growing apples. No, you know a tree by its fruit. That apple tree has apple to its core. It's all apple through and through, and it produces apple trees, okay? I did not take ag classes, so that's a very street-level understanding of agriculture. You're welcome. But that's what we need to keep in mind here. James is saying this, just like a fire produces heat, your faith produces something. And if your faith isn't producing something, we need to worry about that. So let's look at what James calls dead faith. And it's important to see as we look at dead faith that dead faith is marked by two things that James says. A dead faith is marked by an intellectual assent only, and it's marked by compartmentalization. And James goes to great lengths here to show us how useless dead faith is. And that's a super important thing. We need to see, he wants you to see that dead faith isn't just broken and you can fix it. It's dead, it's pointless, it's not going to help you. And he, he does that by giving an example that maybe if you've been in church for a long time, you have encountered. He talks about a person walking into a congregation in need And then somebody just is a well-wisher. They're like, hey, I don't have clothes here. I don't have enough clothes I need. I don't have food to get through the day. And someone just says like a prayer over them. They say, ah, keep warm and well-fed. And James is like, do you see how useless that is? Yeah, that's exactly what faith without works is. So he starts to say that. And then he starts to have a conversation with someone in the crowd, a hypothetical person who starts to push back. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. I have faith. It doesn't have any works. And James is like, yeah, I don't know what you mean. That's totally pointless. Just like a fire produces heat, faith produces some kind of deed. It has some kind of fruit. And if you're saying that you can separate those things, I just don't know what you mean. But then he goes on. Someone says, wait, wait, wait. In verse 18, you got faith. I have deeds. So Faith, that's your department. You can be the faith person, I'll be the deeds person. So see what happens now. James is addressing someone who's trying to separate faith and deeds. They're trying to compartmentalize their life. And James says that that doesn't work. Let me just illustrate what, what that's like. Imagine, for a second, if you will, that you had a Sunday school teacher named Francois. I just, I think that's the only name that, if there's a Francois here, this, this is not you. I'm not talking about you. Sunday school Frank, all right? Imagine Sunday school Frank has been teaching your Sunday school for years. 
And he's helpful. Like, you learn a lot from him. He loves the Bible. He can teach the Bible. And you're just like, whoa, I never knew what that meant. That's so cool. You go to his house. It's just full of theological books. He's like well-read on every blog. He knows what's going on. And you're just like, man, Sunday School Frank is the man. But as you get to know Sunday School Frank a little bit throughout the years, you start to see some inconsistencies in his life. You start to learn that Sunday School Frank drinks himself to sleep every night. He gets in fights with his kid's soccer coach. He steals from work. He cheats on his taxes. And he may even have an inappropriate relationship with someone at his law firm. And so you lovingly approach Sunday School Frank and say, Frank, man, you're not living out like you believe. Like, what's going on here? Like, you say you love all these things and believe it, but look at your life. And imagine this is what James is saying. Frank says, whoa, that's not my department. I'm just the, I'm just the faith guy. I'm just the knowledge guy here. I, I, I don't know how to help you. Like, you're talking about transformed life? It's not me. God has gifted me with, with a mind that knows truth, not a heart that actually is transformed by it. What James is saying here is that you would be loving to look Sunday School Frank in the eye and say, Frank, I don't think you're a Christian. See, that's what dead faith does. It, it says, hey, this, is, this over here, I'm good at this. This is natural for me. This is, this is my life here, okay? Jesus, you can have this. This will be like the Jesus part of my life, but I have this. Dead faith compartmentalizes, and James says, no way. It doesn't work. It's totally useless. And a dead faith is useless on two fronts. James wants you to see this. It's useless before God. A dead faith does not honor God. But a dead faith is also useless when it comes to our relationships with one another. Just like that person who walked into the church and just wished, wished them well, like, hey, hopefully you get some nice food, bye-bye, I'm able to meet your needs, but I'm just going to hope, just send nice thoughts your way. They didn't, they didn't meet any needs, they didn't do anything, it's useless. And James is belaboring this point. Well, why does James go to such great lengths to show us just how useless a dead faith is? I think this next point is really important. James is trying to belabor this point. He's trying to beat it to death. He's trying to say, hey, dead faith is useless. Why? Because you need to turn from dead faith. You see, if we had Paul's understanding of works in here, we'd hear faith plus works honors God. So what we would do is this, naturally. Okay, I have a dead faith. It's just intellectual. I'm not letting it transform my life. I'll try more. I'm gonna put forth more effort. And James gives his readers a simple equation. He says, dead faith plus anything equals dead faith. It's still useless. You can't dress it up. It's rotten chicken. It's totally dead. No matter what you season rotten chicken with, it's still rotten chicken. And James says, the only appropriate response when you see dead faith is this. Take it in the backyard and bury it. Get rid of the dead faith. Don't add to it. Uh, the writer Paul Tripp says it like this. He says, no matter what you do, if you see an apple tree and you staple oranges to it, it does not magically become an orange tree. You can't do that. And that's exactly James's point here. He wants you to see, and he says it again and again and again. It's useless. It's dead. It's empty. So as the body without the spirit is dead, Faith that doesn't have fruit is dead. 
But that's not the end of this passage. James doesn't just devastate us and leave us alone. He holds up that mirror and says, this is what a dead faith looks like. But then he turns our attention to what living faith is. He says, hey, this is what a real faith is. And the first thing he says is real faith is marked by, as, by a transformation that creates love for God. Real faith produces love for God. And that's in verse 21 when he points us to the example of Abraham. He says this, Was not Abraham our father considered righteous for what he did when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if it's been a while since you've read the story of Abraham, this is what happens in Genesis 22. Uh, Well, before Genesis 22, God had made a promise to Abraham. He says, hey, I'm going to rescue the whole world through your offspring. This world is broken, but I'm going to fix it, and you're going to have a kid, and that kid is going to fix everything. And Abraham's like, awesome, I'm 90 years old, that's impossible. And God says, no, I'm going to do this. And so years go by, and finally Abraham has a kid. And then in Genesis 22, God says, perfect, go up onto a mountain and sacrifice that kid. Now, I mentioned I'm a dad. Even as a dad, when I read that, I wince. It's like, ooh. But in case any of you are wondering or wrestling through this, God will never ask you to sacrifice your kids. Just as an aside, uh, Deuteronomy 12, 31, um, God says that one of the reasons he uses Israel to drive the nations out of the promised land is because those nations were practicing child sacrifice And child sacrifice, God says, is detestable to him. So God really wasn't going to kill Isaac. Uh, We know that because he didn't actually kill Isaac. And the last second, Abraham's about to stab Isaac. God saves and provides a sacrifice. It was just a picture. But he, he was showing Abraham's trust. And in that scenario, what he says is, hey, Abraham started out as a pagan who lived by the river, drank keystone light, and worshiped all kinds of false gods. But then look, he had faith, and that faith transformed him into somebody who was willing to give up something they loved, something that was precious to them, something to lay it on the altar before God. That's real faith. And when James says that Abraham was declared righteous by that, what he's saying is, no, his faith was vindicated. When, at that moment when God said, your faith is right, back here, when Abraham believed God and God says, you're righteous, God is proving Abraham really is righteous. Look what he did. His faith transformed him. Nothing Abraham did. It was a fruit of the one who Abraham put his trust in. And James holds that up for us to see, to say this. What is the altar of your life that you, what what are you not willing to put on that altar? You see, we all have things that we love, our jobs, our identity, our reputation, our relationship. And if we're not willing to put that on the altar, it's showing we don't really trust God. That's what faith is all about. Faith is trust. And imagine this. James is saying this. Hey, do you trust God? Yes, I do. Okay, will you do what he says? No, I won't. Well, then do you really trust God? Do you trust him enough to put your career on that altar? Do you trust him enough to walk out in faith and obedience? And James is asking that, and that hurts. That hurts me. I have things on the altar that I'm like, okay, Lord, it's yours. I'll live my life with, an open, with open hands. Okay, is he gone? Did I get it? All right, it's coming back to me. James is saying a life of faith lives, is a life lived with open hands. 
that trusts God so much with our loved ones, with our loved things, that we say, God, this is yours. Why? Because lo- your faith has transformed me. I know your heart. I know your character. And I'm willing to do whatever because I trust you. That's what a real faith is. That's a transformation so powerful. That's something dead works can't do. That's something intellect can't get you to. Intellect can't get you to the place where you're willing to trust God with the things you love the most. Only God can. That's a fruit of a true faith. That's not a work we do. See, imagine if, if it was the tables were turned, if it really was, hey, offer up this sacrifice and then I'll love you. Your relationship with God just becomes this kind of like, is that enough? Is that it? Are you off my back yet? But you see what James, Abraham's example shows us that love transforms you so powerfully that when you look at it, you say, only God did that. God transformed Abraham. He didn't do that on his own. And then the second thing that living faith does, real faith does, is that love for God and that trust for God, that love spills out into others. And then we, look, we see that in the life of Rahab. What's really important about Rahab is her identity. And James points it out. James calls her Rahab the prostitute. And he does that for two reasons. One, to show the transformation. You see, um, many Jewish commentators around this time didn't believe that Rahab was a prostitute. They kind of tried to like clean up Israel's history because Rahab at this time was already a hero of the faith. People were celebrating um, how she was a pagan living in, in Jericho and she trusted God and so she took this huge risk by welcoming his spies into Jericho. And she was celebrated for her faith, but some people were like, no, she was an innkeeper. She wasn't a prostitute, she was an innkeeper. That's what, because the word can technically mean both. And James uses a totally different word to say, no, she was a bad girl. But God transformed her and transformed her from a life of brokenness into a life where she's willing to take radical risks for God's kingdom, his mission, and his people. Think about it. These people were strangers. These were, these were these spies. She didn't know them. She knew of God. She didn't know them. She's willing to risk her life for these strangers. You know, I don't know about you, but I would think that if someone is a prostitute, they don't have a ton of social collateral. Like they're very low on that totem pole. So if you get caught for treason, you may be able to slide by like if you work for the government. But if you're like a prostitute, they're going to kill you. She risked everything and she did so for strangers. So what James is trying to do by showing us this example is he's trying to give us the flip side of what John says in 1 John 4.20. 1 John 4.20 says this, uh, how, if you claim to love God whom you haven't seen, but hate your brother whom you have seen, why should we believe you? And James is saying the same thing. If you really love God, that's going to spill out in love for others. See, do you see your walk with God as just me and Jesus? Like, just me and Jesus, all you other people, like, yeah, we can walk together, but you're slowing me down. Get out of the way. It's just me and Jesus. We're going to go to the beach. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to Instagram it, and it's going to be lovely, and that's just what my faith is. Are people, are they opportunities for relationships, are, or are they hindrances to your walk with God? When you see people, because of your love for God, are you just like, oh, I need to love these people? Or are they like, ugh, get out of my way. Like, you're slowing me down. James has already kind of belabored this point earlier in our chapter. Last week, we talked about how uh, if a poor person comes in, and if you've really experienced God's mercy, 
that mercy will spill out and you'll be compassionate to someone who can't offer you anything in return. And James is just kind of tapping that point home even more. He's saying this, if you really love God, if your faith is real, you will love others. So I just want to close this for a second. We've just looked at a really difficult passage. It's a mirror that shows us our inability. We can't produce this in our life. And some of you right now might be feeling more convicted and not encouraged. Like, thanks, Craig. I come to church hoping to get encouraged. That was super discouraging. Thanks. Well, I just want to say three things. I think there's three applications that we can follow up with this. The first one is this. That conviction that some of you are feeling, some of you might, you might have been saved for a really long time, but it's also been a really long time since you've seen any fruit in your life, and now you feel guilty. Don't see that as shame. See that as a gift from a loving Heavenly Father who loves you so much, He is willing to upset your temporary happiness to move you into a fruitful life. That's grace. That's love. If God didn't love you, he would leave you alone. He wouldn't, he wouldn't send any conviction. So see that as a gift. There's others of you in here who maybe lights are coming on for the first time. You're like, my whole life I've been fostering this kind of dead faith. I've just been like intellectual. I've compartmentalized for sure. I feel better than other people. Um, now what? Fly to Jesus. John 6.37 says this, All that the Father gives to me will come, and the one who comes to me, I will never, I will by no means, I'm not able to cast out. If you're here this morning and you realize that you have a dead faith, you do not need to fear that Jesus' attitude toward you is, told you so, you never can do anything right, ha ha, no, you can run to a Savior who is ready, willing, able, and excited to shower your life with grace. Not just be stingy, like, okay, you've had all this dead faith years. Here's a little bit of grace. Get used to that. We'll give you some more. No, he wants to hold your head under the grace bucket until you drown. He just wants to shower your life with grace. That's the Savior we run to. See, if everybody in here who's a Christian, we all at one point had dead faith. I had dead faith, but God rescued me from that dead faith. And the moment my eyes were open and I turned from my dead faith to a real faith, I wasn't, there was no shame. The hardest part was just admitting it, like, Lord, my faith is dead. And if you're already at that point where you're admitting it, God's probably ahead of you, a few steps ahead of you. But I also want to take a step back and say, what does this mean for us as a church? What does it mean if as a church we believe that real faith produces love? Well, I think there's a really obvious application for us as a church. As a church, let's look for, let's not miss, let's look for opportunities to celebrate fruit in other people's lives. Let's, let's go out of our way to say, hey, 
when we first started coming here together, you were kind of a weirdo. Like you sat in the corner by yourself, you listened to Bon Jovi, you're really angry. But now I look at you and I see you're, you're going out of your way to love people. Man, that's not something you did. That's something God did in you. Let's celebrate that fruit together. Let's not keep that to ourselves of like, oh, do I see fruit in my life? Is there, is there fruit in my life? Let's look out. Let's see the people we're walking with and encourage them. Because here's the thing. If you have real faith, it's honoring to God. God wants you to swim in assurance. So let's encourage each other to love and good works. Let's not miss opportunities to do that. That's not pride. That's not arrogant. That's you being an instrument of grace in someone else's life. Think about it. Someone can hear a sermon like this and just be like, oh my goodness, like, I don't even... Have I ever had real faith? I'm just really wrestling. And if you're wrestling, see that as a sign of life. See, here's the thing what James belabors. Dead faith is dead. D-E-D, dead. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't move. It can't do anything. If you're feeling something, if you're like really wrestling, that can be a sign of life. And see that as a gift. And let's encourage that. Like, hey, I've known you for a long time, but I see this happening in your life. How beautiful is that? That honors God. Let's not be that church where it's like, do they have real faith? Do they have real faith? We don't really know. We need to love people and love sometimes asks those tough questions. But let's celebrate fruit together. Let's do that together by his grace for his glory. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough passage. It's, it's a tough passage because we all fail. Lord, there is no way that anybody in this room is nailing it, that they're living their life perfectly with open hands, that they perfectly just look for opportunities to love others. But Lord, the fact that that makes us feel bad can be a sign that you have given us those desires, and when we don't live out those desires, we're not living how you've created us to live. God, I pray that many would embrace you as a result of looking in your word, Lord. God, I pray that your grace would just transform us from being people who uh, were harnessing dead faith and even encouraging it to a place where we love seeing lives transformed by love for love. I ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.